Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. WABE in Atlanta. Welcome to this Thursday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. On today's program, new research suggests COVID-19 is most contagious in that short window before and after symptoms appear. So here's a question. Could these findings help contact tracing efforts? We'll hear from a UGA professor who co-authored the study. Also, we'll hear from the Georgia Legal Services Program Executive Director because they're marking 50 years of helping low-income Georgians in areas such as family law, housing, eviction prevention, and farm workers' rights. All those conversations coming up. But first this, if the category is Fulton County's elections, the answer is what is more drama? Fulton County's Board of Elections has a new chairperson. Kathy Woolard replaces Alex Wan, who resigned earlier this year. Now, Woolard's nomination was controversial because of her past work as a consultant for Fair Fight Action. The vote was 4-2, with Democratic Commissioner Khadija Abdul-Rahman crossing party lines to vote no. I'm going to speak with the commissioner in just a moment. Now, state Republicans have already started the process of exploring a takeover of Fulton's elections department. Now, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger called it a, quote, blatantly political appointment. Close quote. In other news, the head of Planned Parenthood Southeast says she's feeling good going into a hearing next week in federal appeals court about Georgia's restrictive, quote, heartbeat abortion law. Now, Stacey Fox is CEO of the group. And then she's also one. They're also one of the plaintiffs in the original case to block Georgia's law, which bans abortions at around six weeks when fetal cardiac activity can often be detected. This is settled law. This Georgia law, HB 481, is unconstitutional. And that's clear. And that's why we got a temporary restraining order and we're fighting for a, you know, a permanent injunction. A federal drug judge struck down Georgia's law last year, ruling it violates the right to an abortion as determined in Roe v. Wade. Now, state officials appealed that decision, and a hearing on that appeal is set for next Friday. Also, FIFA delegates are set to stop in Atlanta this Friday as the Global Soccer Organization tours potential, get this, World Cup 2026 host cities. Now, they'll spend all day at Atlanta United's Mercedes-Benz Stadium where World Cup matches could be played. Atlanta is just one of many U.S. stops for FIFA. Other cities include Boston, Nashville, Miami, and New York. And since they're in North America, FIFA delegates will also stop in Canada and Mexico and will visit those places by the end of November. Now, as mentioned earlier, Fulton County Democratic Commissioner Khadija Abdur-Rahman voted no on Kathy, Kathy Woolard's appointment as the Fulton County's Board of Elections new chairperson. So we invited her on the program to explain why. Commissioner, thanks for taking the time. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure to be on your show. Yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> okay, well, let's get to it then. Why did you vote no for Kathy Woolard's appointment as the County Board of Elections new chairperson? 
Okay, first of all, let me say that I don't personally have anything against Kathy Woolard. Uh, however, given the fact that we are poised for a state takeover, given the fact that I presented Alicia Ivey, Abby Martin, Amanda Mattingly, Sherry Allen, Greg Fannin, and Kathy Woolard, all of those names were presented for a slate for us to vet as to who would be best. Mm -hmm. um, that was not received. Uh, it was rejected by Chairman Pitts. He wanted to wholly go forward with Kathy Woolard. And as of last week, when he reached out to her, she was still a lobbyist for fair fight. And so my position is this, and sometimes, you know, they will be lonely positions, but we must do what's right first. Uh, case in point, if it was someone with CPAC and they had, you know, was a lobbyist and we wanted to put them in place, I would say the same thing. Uh, we are threatened with the takeover almost surely now because of Kathy Woolard's paid lobbyist position that did not end until she request, she was requested personally by Chairman uh, Rob Pitts to be the pick, his personal pick. And that is a lightning rod. I, I call on her to step down from the Georgia gang. We are in too fragile of a situation here in Georgia with SB 202 to even give the perception or the hint of doing anything inappropriate. And more importantly, that position, it, it requires a person to be impartial. It is the chairman's position. Let's go back to this vetting process. You said the vetting process commissioner was rejected. Yes, the slate, there was a slate of individuals that uh, was foot, put forth by me because I had went with one person, Alicia Ivey. Uh, the reason I went with her is she's real. She's a business owner here that's well respected on both ends of the aisle by Republicans and Democrats. So I said she would be a good, uh, you know, person to put on there. But then I had a change of heart because the chairman said, well, we need a slate. We, we don't need one person. We need a slate of individuals. I came back with the slates and it was rejected. So here again, why was it rejected? What reasoning did you get? The, the, I, that's the thing, Rose. I didn't get a reasoning. He used his power as the chair, which to me, you know, people can look at it and say, well, that's just politics. But if you've got competing items, he wanted to put Kathy Wooler. I wanted to put a slate. He used as his power as the chair to deny my slate until two weeks from now. And of course, you're and talking so about so folks. So no, it was, hold on, one of the folks. No, you're talking about Fulton County Commission Chair Rob Pitts. Yeah, Fulton County Commission Chair Rob Pitts used his role on yesterday as the board of uh, the chairman of the board to deny my slate from even getting up for a vote in front of the other commissioners. And, and unfortunately, that is the problem because Kathy Woolard is a lightning rod. The Republicans are fundraising as we speak uh, because of her uh, uh, being appointed. And we are in dire straits in that we are part of a state takeover and you have just handed them the key for it. What do you think are those key characteristics then for Fulton County's 
Board of Elections chairperson to have then? The, the, first of all, the Fulton County Board of Chair should, first of all, be impartial, or at least show that they are impartial. They should not have any, uh, my personal opinion, they shouldn't have any lobbying or more importantly, any recent lobbying for any uh, uh, political organization that has interaction for one. For two, it should be someone that not only can stand up to scrutiny, but also will envision everybody. And what I mean is, there are things with the Democratic Party that I agree with, mm -hmm. but there are also things with the Republican Party that I agree with. So I think an impartial view of uh, understanding how to bring about all of the ideas to the stage or to the table, that person has to envision that type of walk for that chairmanship. And we should know we we're talking about fair fight action because there, there's a lot of fair fights out there. So we're talking about fair fight action and also Although Kathy Woolard registered as a lobbyist, did she do any lobbying that you know of? Well, the information that I received is that she has been a lobbyist with them from 2020 until last week. Now, did she do any uh, contractual work? Did she do any lobbying for them? Mm -hmm. I still will have to dig further. However, Rose, let me say this, okay? At this point and juncture and the uh, fragileness of a state takeover for the largest Fulton County, let me tell you how this should be perceived. If we had a contractor that was bidding mm -hmm. and that contractor wanted business with Fulton County and for some reason that contractor may have looked to be partisan or may look to be one way or another, that contractor probably in the best uh, light of this business will pull back because they would not want to be perceived one way or another. What I'm calling on with Kathy Wooler is this is so serious and fragile and we are guaranteed with the state takeover, I would have hoped that she one will have not taken this or two would have disclosed to all of us that she had had a lobbying position with them. She never made a call to me. She never disclosed it to me. And I was blindsided by Democrats and Republicans when I received the information that she had been. When this information, did you receive this information at the same time all the other commissioners did? And in also including in that is Chairman Pitts. To your knowledge, do you know if he knew of Kathy Willard's association with Fair Fight Action? I don't know that he knew because he didn't have a conversation with me. Unfortunately, Rose, I would be less than who I am to tell you that we don't have the best relationship. He seems to be a tad bit adversarial. So we, I, you know, I have to talk to his, as a, as a fellow legislator, I have to talk to his chair, his uh, chief of staff. I, I can't talk with him. And so when you have a wall anyway that I've been trying to really work against to get communication with him, that's a separate issue. But more importantly, I can't speak on the other 
uh, individuals other than they told me they talked to her. They told me that they were aware. Because believe you me, I did go to other commissioners and ask them, I've received this. Do you know that there is a relationship? And they said, I didn't know. Well, then when they found out, what did they tell you? Uh, when I when I was able to have a conversation with them before the vote mm -hmm. and told them that she did have a relationship, some of them said they weren't aware. Some of them said they were aware, but they just heard that she just introduced some people. She didn't really have a relationship. And so the story varies from one commissioner to another. For my personal experience, I didn't have a conversation with her. For my personal experience, there is a relationship with Fair Fight. And for my personal experience, it's too dangerous uh, for a state takeover. A couple of things before I let you go, Commissioner. So you are pretty much certain that this could be that final nail in the coffin, hey, to put it like that, for you all in terms of a state takeover. Yes, and let me tell you why. SB 202 allows this. It's as though you're handing the gasoline to the one that's, had, that's holding the matches. SB 202 allows the state to do this based on that. And so that's why I say it's very dangerous. And right now, how would you characterize the relationship with the Fulton County Commission as commissioners? <laughs> The, the relationship with Fulton County Commission, for the most part, I get along with the commissioners, but I have to always stand on where my loyalty lies, and it's to the constituents. And I can't say that that is for everybody, but for me, I have to do what's right for the community first because they put me here. Democratic Commissioner Khadija Abdur-Rahman, thank you so much for taking time. I really appreciate it. Now, we did reach out to Kathy Willard at this time as she's not available for a comment but did say when she would be perhaps in the future she would definitely agree to come on closer look so I wanted to put that out there. Thank you Commissioner really appreciate it. Thank you Rose you have a wonderful day. You too. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now. This is 90.1 WABE. I'm Rose Scott. Here's the question researchers at the University of Georgia wanted to know. Is there an association between the timing of exposure to and severity of COVID-19 disease in close contacts of what they call index patients with the virus? It's a good question. The findings was this. Individuals with COVID-19 are most likely to spread the virus to close contacts two days before the onset of symptoms to three days after symptoms appear. Also, the risk of transmission is highest when patients had mild or moderate disease severity. 
And so then another question comes into play, and that's according to a new study by researchers at the University of Georgia. We're going to have more on this. So joining me now is Dr. Ye Shane. He's an associate professor of epidemiology and biostatistics in the College of Public Health at UGA. Professor, thanks for taking the time. Uh, Good afternoon, Rose. Thank you for having me today. Absolutely. Let's carefully walk our listeners and me through this research step by step, okay? So first... Who were the participants in this study, and during what time was it conducted? So the study was conducted in earlier last year, from January to August uh, 2020, actually. So this was from uh, East China province in Georgia, uh, where we collected information on all the uh, confirmed COVID-19 cases and also their close contacts in the contact, contact tracing study. How many? How many participants? So there were um, a, a total of over a thousand of uh, index uh, patients. Among those, we had contact tracing data of 730 of them. And then out of these 730 patients, uh, we also had close to 9,000 close contacts of theirs. So that was the setting of the study. And Professor, how diverse was this group in terms of age and, 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 other, and other demographics that you all needed? Um, so age was pretty di- di- diverse. Uh, I think the median age is around 40 to 45 years old. Uh, and then uh, male and female are about half and a half, mm-hmm. uh, slightly more males than females. Um, and they have a variety of occupations and uh, other kind of demographics. What about in terms of any pre-existing conditions did you know of and was that key also in making sure you needed to either filter that out or if it was included in the research you all were collecting because I imagine that might have played a role in the findings. Absolutely, absolutely. You raise a very good question. Unfortunately, we actually did not collect pre-existing conditions among these people but actually these are all the cases, confirmed cases we had in that area during the period so in some sense, this is a population-based study. So we're not really sampling from, from the population. So we do believe it is at least a representative of the whole province at, at that time during the period. Uh, but I think if we had uh, those pre- existing conditions, that would allow us to further look at whether mm-hmm. these are associated with the infection as well. And I want to be clear for our audience, too, these were unvaccinated participants, correct? Exactly. That was earlier 2020. There's no existing vaccination mm-hmm. for, all, for all these people. And that is key also to these findings, correct, Professor? Because if you took this in, in China, you said between January 8th, 2020, and when? Mm-hmm. So it, it is from January uh, the 8th to uh, July the 30th, I think, all the index patients. Uh, and, and then I agree with you, this study currently only applies to those unvaccinated population. And that's why I think the study findings need to be further repeated in a vaccinated mm-hmm. population, for example, right now in the U.S. And also, remember, this was earlier 2020, so all the, all the subjects were infected by the original SARS-CoV-2 uh, strain, not the Delta, Delta variant we are seeing right now in the U.S. So that is another difference I want to point out. That was my next question. It's like you're looking at my mm-hmm. script. I was going to ask you, does it matter okay. the type of coronavirus here you all we're looking at because now we have these variants and, of course, the, the, the recent Delta variant. So I know our listeners might be curious, with these findings, they probably wouldn't apply to, let's say, the Delta variant. 
Yeah, I think as first we know that they're all SARS-CoV-2. They're just different variants. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think in general, the message still should be consistent. However, we do have this caveat that we already know that the Delta variant is much more contagious than uh, than, than the original version. So we know that it spreads much faster and, and, and potentially could also cause more severe disease. Uh, so we need to be very careful, especially the message on contact tracing. We probably even need to do a better job to suppress the pandemic right now than what we had a year ago or so, if we want to uh, really suppress the, the, the epidemic mm-hmm. right now. And also, Professor, I want to go back to just with the participants for a moment. These folks, were they just identified as folks who maybe worked in a healthcare setting or hospitals? Um, you had a cross section of folks working in different sectors. And I imagine that was important, too. Yeah, they, we do have uh, healthcare workers during uh, in this uh, cohort. I think they have, they have all different occupations. And one thing we did notice is the healthcare workers actually had a slightly lower risk of infection among this contact tracing study. So our takeaway is that potentially that was because they were more cautious, they were wearing face masks and they were having uh, all these PPEs and that does help to protect them from infections. Um, that's potentially one of the explanations, although we don't have the full picture of why this group tend to have a lower risk. Uh, but I think further studies are warranted to, to mm-hmm. look at this population. Well, let's talk about the findings then, because, and, and look, you know, for folks like me who we, we have no idea in terms of what it takes to come up with something like this, but you all say, now, individuals with COVID-19 most likely to spread the virus to close contacts two days before the onset of symptoms to three days after the symptoms appear. How are you all mm-hmm. able to conclude that? So basically what we did is we collected all these information from the index patients and their close contacts, mm-hmm. right? So you know that who actually eventually transmitted to who in this setting. And then we also had information on their exposure contact period. So basically we asked questions to both the index patients and their contacts say, okay, you guys had a contact on which day and is that a multiple contacts or a single contact? If it is multiple contacts from when to when? So with this timing information of exposure, that's critical to understand. So then through those state of the art modeling approaches, we can adjust for this timing in the analysis. So in the end, we were able to find a period of time during which the exposure actually leads to the highest risk of infection. And you all so that's a very step-by-step approach. And you also and, and on to that point, you all say the risk of transmission is highest when these patients had what you consider mild or moderate disease severity? Yeah, so be careful about this conclusion here. So we actually don't have severe cases in the uh, index patient population. Mm-hmm. So the mild and moderate are already the highest severity levels. So that being said, they were compared with those asymptomatic cases. So basically the symptomatic patients are more likely to transmit the disease, the virus to uh, the other people, basically. So higher level of severity in the symptoms leads to higher risk of transmission, if you want to conclude that way. 
What does it say to you about being able to come to this findings with cohorts so that, that contracted the virus so early on in this pandemic and then how it can be useful now? Uh, I think, as I mentioned earlier, firstly, these are all SARS-CoV-2. Mm-hmm. And we know that um, they are different than some of the other infectious disease. For example, uh, SARS-CoV, the first generation, SARS-CoV-1, uh, that's almost like 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, the key difference I would point out here is uh, there's no evidence to show that the original SARS 20 years ago can be transmitted prior to symptom onset. However, through these recent studies, and our study is not the only one, there are other studies to support the evidence that SARS-CoV-2 can be transmitted prior to symptom onset. And I consider it a part of the reason why this disease has spread so widely, mm-hmm. because it's very difficult to prevent if you can transmit the disease even before you show symptoms, right? Mm, so that's yeah. part of the reason, I think. I think that knowledge applies to Delta, applies to other variants as well. So we need to be really making efforts uh, to do better job in contact tracing so that we ask those people you know, who you contact with during the past two days and, and, and the, the, the next three days around symptom onset. And then we can prioritize those close contacts to be further investigated and potentially quarantined so that we can contain the disease in an effective way. And so, Professor, as you know, obviously so much is made about getting folks vaccinated. Do you think the message of folks also just getting tested, that's gotten a little lost because that's going to be important in all of this as well? Yeah, I think both are very important. Getting tested so you know that, again, our study would apply to that point of view because once you know that you are infected, you need to be careful about who you contact with, who you are exposed during the period, right? But vaccination also has something uh, that our study also suggests because lower symptoms, lower level of symptoms tend to transmit less, right? Mm-hmm. And then if you are vaccinated, we know that you are more likely to, even if you have a breakthrough case, you're more likely to have a, a, a mild disease. And if you have a mild disease, disease the, the likelihood that you transmit the disease to the others are also lowered. So in, in that regard, this is also connected to some of our findings. So I think both vaccination and the frequent testing, those are all effective measures to contain the disease for the time being. Professor, I have a question from a listener who wants to know is wants to know if in that population that you all were doing your research, did anyone die? Did anyone lose their life to the virus? No, fortunately, I think because of the effective contact tracing they performed, most of the uh, close contact they were a- able to identify were early in the stage. And we did have severe cases among those close contacts, but fortunately, none of these patients eventually actually died. And then finally, Professor, as we wrap up, you say, look, now let's take this even further. And now we need to use this study with vaccinated folks. Yeah. Um, I think uh, during uh, the more recent outbreaks, we have more and more people who are already vaccinated and we start to observe these breakthrough cases. And it's still unclear how uh, these kind of contact tracing applies to these vaccinated population. Uh, are they at a lower risk of transmission? Um, are they have, because of they have a lo- lower level of symptoms, uh, is that going to be easier uh, for them to recover? All these questions are un- answered. I think with a population level uh, contact tracing study, we will be able to uh, 
uh, tackle this problem uh, um, better, hopefully in the next uh, half a year or so. And Professor, I, I always enjoy, well, enjoy, but I always, this question is always interesting to me in terms of the answer. And that is people, folks in your field, I mean, you're an epidemiologist and you work in mm-hmm. biostatistics. What has really been unique or what stands out to you that's so extraordinary about this coronavirus? Um, there's just so much we don't know about this coronavirus. And uh, one thing actually, uh, to me, is, is a big shock is that how uh, people over the world are trying to perform all kinds of research around this coronavirus. Uh, this was never the thing for any of the previous infectious disease that has spread it uh, globally. Uh, even for um, SARS, the first, uh, the original SARS 20 mm-hmm. years ago, we never saw such kind of scientific research related, uh, devoted to the field. And even with these kind of effort, I still feel like there's a lot unknown about this coronavirus. And this is certainly a deadly disease. And we got to do better, both in research, both in public health measures to help uh, and us to be in a better position to to, to fight the, the dead of the disease, I want to say. Well, goodness, I've heard that so many times. Dr. Ye Shane is an associate professor of epidemiology and biostatistics in the College of Public Health at the University of Georgia, and we will have a link to the study and the research on our website as well. Dr. Shane, thank you so much for the conversation. Fascinating. Thank you. Thank you. Take care and stay healthy. You too. And you're tuned to Closer Look here on 90.1 WABE. As always, I'm Rose Scott. Tomorrow, the Georgia Legal Services Program will host the Rural Georgia Justice and Poverty Summit. It's part of the organization's 50th anniversary celebration. If you're unfamiliar with the work of the GLSP, well, stick around because their center their work centers around free legal services to low-income Georgians who live outside Metro Atlanta. We're talking about services in the area of family law, housing, access to public benefits, eviction prevention, farm workers' rights, and access to education. And joining me now with more on the organization and the Rural Georgia Justice and Poverty Summit is Rick Ruffalo. He's the executive director of the Georgia Legal Services Program. Thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Rose. I appreciate you having me today. Let's begin with the backstory. I love a good backstory. Um, What is the backstory of Georgia Legal Services Program? Fifty years ago, it was founded. Yeah, fifty years is a long time. Now for, I know you uh, didn't found for, it because you're not that you're 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 a young man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, if you go back even a little bit uh, past fifty years, all the way back to to 1968, um, there were a, a, a small group of of lawyers who were part of the young lawyer section of the State Bar of Georgia, and uh, they were doing a study and had identified that there was this significant gap that existed. Um, primarily in rural Georgia. Uh, and the gap was, you know, between um, people who were um, looking for uh, legal services but couldn't afford attorneys and the lack of attorneys in those areas. Um, and just to put that in today's context, mm-hmm. um, you know, when you look at the poverty population um, in Georgia, uh, 70% of that poverty population resides outside the five metro Atlanta counties. Yet, when you look at the lawyers that are licensed to practice in this state, 
70% of the lawyers practice in the five metro Atlanta counties. So, mm. you know, it was over 50 years ago that these young lawyers identified, you know, this significant gap. Um, and, you know, after, uh, you know, a couple of years of study, uh, they uh, were able to um, put a proposal together and, and get funding to start Georgia Legal Services Program. Wow. And fast forward to present day, how many folks do you, you all service an annual, on an annual basis here? Uh, so depending on how you, uh, how you, what measurements you want to use. I mean, we handle over 77,000 calls through our intake. Mm-hmm. Um, now, of course, those all don't uh, result in, um, in providing legal services. Uh, but, you know, notwithstanding, um, you know, the impact of the pandemic um, last year, you know, we um, um, uh, handled over over 9,000 cases, um, uh, and, um, you know, we're seeing uh, around the same number um, this year. So you all are in about, you all do your work in about 153, 54 counties in. So we, we do work in 154 counties, all but the five metro Atlanta counties. So it's, uh, it's quite a, a, a broad area, um, all four corners of the state. And how are Georgians typically referred to you all? Are they referred or folks know that they can, because I think a lot of folks, I'll be honest with you, I should be honest, I had never heard of y'all. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe I should have. Yeah, and, and Rose, and, and that's, that's actually why we're, we're holding the summit. Um, you know, we, we have a great story to tell, um, and we need to, uh, to do a better job of telling that story. We have some fantastic um, community partners that uh, refer a lot of clients um, to Georgia Legal Services. Um, we have now a, a, a new um, 800 number, 833-GLSP-LAW, so much easier uh, for people to remember. Um, and, you know, um, many of our clients um, get information uh, through our website at uh, glsp.org. Um, so there, there are lots of ways to... to um, to reach out for Georgia Legal Services, but you know uh, that's the important of this summit is to raise awareness um, and to to really tell our story. And so the attorneys working with you all, it's all pro bono work. Uh, no, it is not. So okay. we have 180 employees uh, in the state um, in 10 different offices. Uh, 180 employees, and uh, uh, right now about 82 lawyers. Uh, and those lawyers are member of the Georgia Legal Services team. Um, you know, they are they are lawyers who are passionate uh, about helping those in need, and um, and you know, and they they live this every day. It is their it is their life's work. Um, now we also work with um, with private attorneys who do take on cases for us pro bono. Um, and so that's a, you know, that's an important um, collaboration. Um, and, you know, we're really doing some fantastic work um, in transforming how we deliver pro bono services. Um, and I just want to want to just share um, an example for you. Um, so in June, um, we um, conducted a wills clinic in Plains, Georgia, mm-hmm. and it was, um, you know, in collaboration with the Jimmy Carter Foundation. Um, and so several of us were, were there on site and, and met with clients to, uh, to help them prepare wills. And we had lawyers from around the state who participated virtually, um, you know, and we would not have done that 18 months ago. Um, you know, if, if, 
if you were interviewing me 18 months ago, I mm -hmm. may have been in your studio as opposed to doing it via sure. Zoom. And so that's, you know, at least one of the opportunities that has come out of the threat of the pandemic is finding ways, you know, to take talent from all over the state um, and bring it to, you know, where we need um, that expertise. I'm curious because, Rick, you all in the many services in the areas that you all uh, provide for folks. And, and I was really curious about the farm workers rights. Take that a little bit further for us. Sure. I mean, that is that is unique to uh, to rural Georgia, right? There, 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 uh, you know, are a lot of, um, you know, farming, you know, farming is a huge industry in, in Georgia. And so in rural parts of, of the state, um, we are representing um, farm workers to ensure that their rights are not violated. Um, you know, we do unfortunately see too often um, where they are taken advantage of when it comes to their wages. Um, there's, you know, some things that, uh, that uh, you know, we refer to as labor trafficking. So we're all familiar with human trafficking, mm -hmm. but there's a form of that in the form of labor tra trafficking where, um, you know, workers are brought in from, um, from other countries. They're mm -hmm. brought here on, on proper visas, um, yet they're taken advantage of. They're provided with um, horrible living conditions. Um, and it really is a, it is a form of, of human trafficking in, in the form of, of labor trafficking. So, you know, we have uh, a great outreach program where our advocates are going to, um, to farms around the state. And, um, you know, and through that outreach, sharing information, sharing resources so that farm workers know what their rights are. If you just join us, I'm in conversation with Rick Ruffalo. He's the executive director of the Georgia Legal, Georgia Legal Services Program, celebrating 50 years. I, I want to go back to an, another population uh, in society, and I'm curious, do you all work with individuals who have been re recently, recently uh, reentering society or, or once incarcerated? Do you work with those individuals as well? We do. Um, and, and again, what we find, Rose, is that, you know, it's not always one legal issue. Mm -hmm. um, right. And so you talk about reentry, uh, but, you know, that may um, lead to other legal issues. Uh, so, you know, someone who has recently, um, um, you know, been released uh, from from jail, who is now um, looking to secure public benefits, mm -hmm. um, you know, um, potentially facing eviction, um, you know, because they're unable to pay their rent. Um, and a lot of this, again, exacerbated by the pandemic. Um, so, again, you think about somebody who was gainfully employed, who through no fault of their own, loses a job and therefore is entitled to benefits, including unemployment benefits, yet because of the complexities of the process, to secure those benefits, mm -hmm. um, you know, they find themselves facing these really tough problems. And I imagine because of the pandemic, and we've been talking about this so much on this program, and obviously it's been highlighted throughout the nation, that, of course, is the evictions that the process has begun, it, it, whether a moratorium was in place or not, the process right. had begun for so many people. You all, I imagine, saw an increase in folks needing either some type of consultation or actual services as relates to losing their housing due to evictions. Yeah. And, 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 and the work that we do there has, has increased um, dramatically, notwithstanding, you know, the moratorium in that many courts, um, you know, had stayed um, eviction hearings, but, you know, now that the moratorium has been lifted, 
you know, we are seeing, um, you know, more, more hearings taking place. Now, you know, I will tell you that, um, you know, magistrate courts are, are handling evictions, you know, different ways across the state. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we are seeing some judges who are effectively using eviction diversion strategies like uh, mediation and, you know, providing information on rental assistance. Other judges are continuing um, cases um, to give people time to uh, to file their rental assistant applications. Um, unfortunately, we still, um, you know, see some courts where, you know, they're moving forward with eviction hearing. So it's, you know, it's across the board. Um, but what we're really focused on is, you know, really, um, you know, various eviction diversion um, strategies so that we can keep people in their homes so that they have a roof over their head. Let's talk about this summit that kicks off tomorrow. Uh, what, why this particular issue this agenda for as you all celebrate your 50th anniversary yeah so you know it it really goes back to to 2019 when you know a a small group of the glsp team was talking about the upcoming 50th anniversary in 2021 and you know we wanted a way to as i said earlier tell our story uh you know we we wanted to do a traditional fundraising gala which we will do in april of 2022 um, but we also wanted to highlight the, the great work that we've been doing for 50 years. And so we developed the summit and, uh, you know, as a virtual event, um, as an opportunity to, to raise awareness. I mean, we have some outstanding lawyers, paralegals and advocates uh, who have so much expertise and, and they are in a great position to share that. Um, so. That's really the, the impetus of, of why we you know, decided to do uh, the summit. Um, and, you know, we were fortunate to, um, to collaborate with, uh, with the Georgia State University Center for Access to Justice, mm-hmm. um, who will be hosting us, notwithstanding that it's virtual, but we will have some, some live presentation. Rick, when we, when we talked about the farm workers' rights, and obviously we know that 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 probably occurs in areas, obviously, in rural parts of Georgia. But when you look at the different sections of the state, do you find yourself, you all are, are having to deal with one particular type of service that might be needed in the outskirts and more of the rural parts of the state, as opposed to would you come in closer to the Atlanta area? Yeah, so, you know, I, I would say that, um, you know, poverty doesn't discriminate between mm-hmm. Um, urban and, and rural communities. Um, I think if there's a difference in, in rural communities, it, it becomes an access issue. Um, you know, it's, it's much more challenging to access the court system um, because of geography, mm-hmm. um, access to information. You know, we, we've seen this uh, as a result of the pandemic, the number of students who have been um, so impacted by the lack of internet access. And so, you know, as you get into to rural Georgia, the infrastructure is not as good. And so that, that just, it compounds, you know, a problem that becomes much more complex, you know, because of access issues. So then that being said, then Rick, how are you all able then to, is this then you're consulting via phone? So we, we've done a lot of things over the last 18 months to make sure that we stay connected to our clients. Mm-hmm. 
Um, you know, we've, we've been able to share a lot of information with them um, through our newsletters. Um, as an example, our, our elder action team has done a fantastic job, um, you know, calling our email database and, and sharing information with as many seniors as we can about, you know, just various issues that they are dealing with. Um, it, it requires us to, to be creative. Um, you know, I can tell you many stories of our lawyers, you know, who have met clients outside the office and, you know, and handled, um, you know, some documentation on the hood of a car. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've done everything we can to, you know, to bring our clients to our offices and do it in a, in a safe manner, um, making sure that, you know, we're socially distanced in those circumstances. Um, but, you know, it really comes down to just the, the passion that our people have in, in giving back to others and, you know, not letting, you know, the, the many challenges that we've seen the last 18 months, you know, get in the way in, in how we, you know, how we um, how we interact with our clients. Um, but then it goes back to some of the you know, things we were talking about earlier and how can we use technology mm-hmm. to more effectively reach um, clients, um, in, you know, in remote part of the state, um, you know, collaborating more with attorneys who who are willing to take, uh, pro bono cases, um, you know, notwithstanding that they may not have face-to-face interaction with that client, but can still provide effective legal advice and counsel. Well, when you talk about effective legal advice and, and counseling, how do you measure that is that simply if the individual or the household that you help did receive something in their favor, whether rather either through an action or something like that? How do you measure yeah. that? Yeah. So uh, look, sometimes it is the the outcome, right? It's mm-hmm. the it's the the outcome as we apply the law, and you know whether we get a favorable um, decision for our client. Um, but but sometimes it's simply um, being there for someone being able to answer some questions, provide information, identify other resources that they can tap into. Um, so there, there are lots of ways to, to, to measure success. Um, and I like to think about it, you know, are we, are we helping somebody improve their life, right? Mm-hmm. Are we helping someone have access to justice and are we creating opportunities for them out of poverty? That, that's to me, you know, the measurement. And, and it's not always just something, you know, that's a number, right? Because at the end of the day, Rose, it's, it's someone who we're representing. It's a, it's a neighbor, right? It's a fellow Georgian who, you know, we are trying to help through a very challenging time. It's not a bad metric to use. Let me ask you this, Rick, uh, how long you want to stay with the, with the organization? As long as they'll have me. Another 50 years? Well, I'm not sure I'm going to make it 50 years. Let's, you know what, I'm going to see if I can get through tomorrow uh, because we're really excited about the, about the summit. And, uh, you know, the good news is we have such an outstanding team um, that, uh, you know, we're, we're going to be here another 50 years. All right. Rick Ruffalo, executive director of the Georgia Legal Services Program, celebrating 50 years of a little bit oh, more than 50 years of helping so many Georgians, particularly low income Georgians who reside reside outside of Metro Atlanta. Rick, thank you so much for taking the time. Congratulations on 50 years and best of luck to you all in what you're doing to help so many people in our state. Thanks, Rose. Really appreciate you. 
And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. A reminder to let us know your thoughts because y'all do it all the time and I'm okay with that. Your thoughts on today's program or any other. So send me an email, rose at wabe.org. Also, if you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m as well as in a podcast. Subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like because we'll be there and it will be free. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.